Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We continue our harmony of the Gospels together. Matthew 24. I want to read from verses 23 down to verse 31. You'll see this is also referenced in Mark and also in Luke. We'll just read Luke's account because Mark's account is pretty much uh, verbatim Matthew's account here. Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 31. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. You'll turn over to Luke chapter 21. We'll read verses 25 through 28. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory, When these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a glorious, triumphant text. How fitting that we come to this on the Sunday before Christmas. I pray that you would help us to focus our minds and our the attention of our minds and the affections of our hearts upon your Son, Jesus, this morning. May we glory in His glory. May we see His greatness, be humbled before Him. And may you, even in these moments, perhaps there are some here who are lost, who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, we ask that you would grant them life today. Grant them eyes to see, hearts to believe, that they would be born again to a living hope this day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, there is little doubt that up to this point in the Olivet Discourse that we're in the middle of, Jesus has been providing perspective to first century Christians and the persecution that they could expect to receive within their own lifetimes, especially that event that would happen in A.D. 70, when Rome would come through and conquer Jerusalem and destroy the temple in such a way that not one stone would be left upon another. These words, though, have continuing significance, not only in 
the fact that they provide us with credibility and the reliability of the biblical text because biblical prophecies come to pass as they said that they will. But they also point forward to a greater persecution and a great tribulation that is still yet to come, which we talked about last time. So we now come to a section in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in which the prophecy that he's giving crescendos into his second coming. Last week we took an aside and we looked at Matthew 2 and we considered part of the Christmas story. We kind of had a Christmas sermon last Sunday and we looked at Jesus' first coming. But now today we come, we fast forward from that moment, from Jesus' birth, to the end of human history and to the glorious return of that same Jesus, of our Lord and Savior. We move this morning from Christmas to the second coming. Jesus provides us with information on what to expect in the days leading up to his return. And he prepares us for those events ahead of time. Now, he doesn't provide us with specific dates or times. And a lot of the discussion that we come across here in the Olivet Discourse is general in nature, which has furnished a lot of discussion and theological debate on the interpretation of the text. However, Jesus does provide us here with enough information that I can guarantee you this, that you'll know it when you see it. You will absolutely know it when you see it. Again, this is a common characteristic of biblical prophecy. Consider the passage that's found in Isaiah chapter 48. If you want to turn there, you can. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 3 through 7, we are given an indication as to how prophecy in the Bible operates. God has a very specific reason for saying what he does and for holding back what he does. This is what we read. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass, because... I know you are an obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is bronze. Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I told them to you, so that when they would, you wouldn't say, My idol has done them, or my graven image, my molten image has commanded it. You have heard, look at all of this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you, new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not from long ago. And before today you have not heard them, so that you won't say, Behold, I knew them. Now, why is it that God functions this way? He talks about speaking about things long before they ever happened, and then he speaks of other things which he tells them just before they happen. Why does God operate in this fashion? Why does he provide prophecy in this way? Well, the next verse there in Isaiah 48 tells us, verse 8 says, You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously. God says, I know your treacherous hearts. I know how you are, God says. You've been called a rebel from birth, he goes on to describe. God tells us, here's here's the element, the key. God tells us enough So that when it happens, it's undeniably God's work because he called it, right? God can say, I called it, I said it, it's my work. You can't ascribe that to an idol. You can't give that to a molten image. You can't say that something else caused it. I declared it. I called it way before it ever happened. So you can't give this glory to some false god. 
And yet, in the same passage, God goes on to say, but I don't tell you so much, such that when it happens, you say, see, I already knew it. I already had this locked down. God lays claim to the future, for no one else can see the future as he does. And he keeps us humble, making sure that we don't rest on our own understanding of what's to come, ensuring that he alone receives glory. I mean, this is an important question to grapple with, because the question is, why is the Olivet Discourse the way it is? Why not just tell us, this date, I'll return, in this fashion, with all of these details, exactly like this? Why aren't we given that? Well, I think it's because God knows how our treacherous hearts work. And in such a case, if we were given too much, we would then say, ah, I knew it all, and we'd sit back on our laurels and glory in our knowledge of these things. And then simultaneously, he doesn't leave us with nothing such that someone else can't take credit for what's going to happen. He gives enough to make it undeniably sure and real that when it happens, we'll know it was him. But he doesn't tell us too much such that we'll sit back and say that we knew it all. You see, there's no room for God sharing his glory with either an idol or a haughty, prideful human. He won't do that. He receives all glory for what is about to happen, for it's his story from beginning to end. So why does Jesus answer his disciples' question regarding when all of history will come to a conclusion in the fashion that he does? Why does he, his address take on the form that it does? Why does he say what he says? Well, besides just making a comment about our own kind of prideful, haughty hearts, I think another thing we can do is we can take a look at this passage and consider it from the eyes of a parent. You see, God treats us as his children. And so we can actually learn something about the way that a parent interacts with his or her child. How do we treat our children? How do we think about them as it relates to what's about to come, if we have some idea of what is to come? You see, Jesus here treats his disciples as dear children who might have apprehensions about the future. I'm sure no one in here has ever had any apprehensions or worries about the future. I'm sure we've all been completely content always, right? Never had any apprehensions. Certainly we all have. We all had apprehensions about the future. So how does a parent deal with a child who's struggling with their thoughts about the future? How do you do that as a parent? Well, I think Jesus here treats us as children. And he provides two things that any parent would provide his child on an occasion like that in thinking about the future. Two things. One thing that he provides is an explanation. And another thing that he provides is comfort. Explanation and comfort. You see, we all need some of both. We all need some explanation and we all need some comfort. And so as we consider this text, I want to see the explanation and the comfort that Jesus provides us when thinking about the conclusion of history and all of the tremendous events that are going to surround the conclusion of human history. He gives two things. Number one, we'll look at this together in just a second. A message for our minds. Point number one, a message for our minds. And then point number two, he gives us a solace for our souls. A solace for our souls. Let's first of all consider the message that Jesus gives for our minds. A message for our minds. He gives us a glimpse into what is to come. Now, our minds were made to make inquiry. We have an innate desire to know who, what, when, where, why, and how. We are naturally curious. A decent litmus test to see what we are by nature is to consider our earliest years. And since if you're like me, you have a hard time remembering what you were like when you were very, very young, 
a good thing for us to do is to look at our children, to look at children that are around us, because they'll give us a glimpse as to what we're like by nature. For example, total depravity is one of the clearest doctrines of the Bible, because we can observe children, even from the youngest of ages, engaging in sin. As a child grows up, their sin doesn't magically go away either. The teenager just becomes more cunning in his or her engagement in sin. And the adult just becomes more and more sophisticated in the way in which they rationalize their sin or cover up their sin or hide their sin. A great many sins are marginalized and rationalized and covered up by adults, but they're still sinners. People may remark that an adult needs to go back to kindergarten to learn how to share. Have you ever heard that kind of thing? You know, you can go back to kindergarten. But it's proof that we don't know how to share inherently. Because why? We're inherently selfish. We seek our own glory. We seek our own name. We're out for number one, and that's ourselves. We have to be taught to share. And it's also proof that education itself doesn't solve the problem. Because no matter how much education you've had, you still have struggle with sharing, don't you? We still have that selfish bent about us. We need more than just mere education. The fact that we are born dead in our sins and that we inherit a sin nature from Adam is obvious. It's plainly evident. All of humanity is wrecked by sin. Sin is something that we have from birth ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. It's been passed down to all of us. So it, but so is curiosity. Curiosity is a basic human condition. Children from the youngest of ages are curious. You have to work hard to destroy their bent towards curiosity. I'm not saying you can do nothing to curb their curiosity. You can do a lot to wreck a child's curiosity. But you don't have to train a child to ask questions. Spend some time with some four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, and count the number of questions you receive while you're with them. They are curious by nature. God gave us a mind that inquires, that searches out answers for things. You don't have to train a child to ask questions about the world around him or her. Often what you have to do with adults is to retrain them that it's okay to ask questions, right? But children do it inherently. You have to train yourself out of it. We make inquiries. We are curious. How many of you as parents had to give lessons to your children in how to disobey? Okay, this is how we lie. Let me show you how you lie. This is how you steal. Let me show you how you steal. This is how you disobey my direct authority and orders. This is how you show yourself a rebel. We never have to sit down with our children and teach them that. Why? It's Again, by, they're sinners by nature and by birth. Similarly, you don't have to teach them to be inquisitive. They are inquisitive by nature. They look into the world around them. They're curious about everything around them. They have this inherently. You don't have to teach a child to wonder. But you can do a lot to wreck their wonder. It doesn't go away except through shallow thinking about things that we wonder about. I think sometimes we can assign names and categories to phenomenon in an attempt to convince ourselves that we understand a thing or that we've become experts of a thing. Yet just because you can name something doesn't mean that you understand it thoroughly. 
For example, an astronomer might become so loaded down with terminology and theories about the stars that he loses his awe and wonder at looking at them on a dark night. A doctor might become so inundated with medical jargon that he loses his wonder over the incredible creation that the human body is. An ultrastenographer might lose the awe of the fact that babies develop within the womb of a woman. We might even take our Bibles for granted because they're all around us. They've become somehow commonplace to us. Nonetheless, no matter who you are or your background, there's still within us, even if it's buried deeply, a desire to know the truth, a desire to understand the who's, what's, when's, where's, why's, and how's. There's a craving inside of us to have questions answered. On this particular occasion, the disciples were asking, when are these things going to take place, Jesus? And certainly we here still today inquire with that same question. When are you going to return, Jesus? What are the factors surrounding your return? So many TV shows of our day take advantage of that reality. We're naturally inquisitive. We're curious. And we want to have our questions answered. Why are TV series constructed with cliffhanger endings? Why do we become upset when a show doesn't wrap up all of the loose ends nicely? Why don't we like to be left hanging? Why is it that we want answers? Well, to answer that question, you'll have to come back next week in order to find out. No, I, I won't do that to you, right? So, so again, I return to the same point here. We desire answers to questions because we're made this way. God created us with a natural desire to search out truth. So Jesus, knowing this, as any good parent, provides some information. Gives a message to the mind. He doesn't just say, oh, they're there. He gives some information. There is a message communicated. We're not given all the details, certainly not. But we are, giving some, we are given some significant details about what is yet to come. This is one of those careful balancing things, right? We've all probably known or ourselves been someone who had an unhealthy interest in end things and made a huge chart of how all this is going to happen and made outlandish claims about how the end is all going to be wrapped up. And we all look at it now and go, man, I was such a fool or, wow, those people are kind of off. But the other extreme of this is to be like, oh, who cares? It doesn't matter at all. You see, Jesus has provided us a message for our minds. He gives us some information. Certainly, we ought to avoid any sort of presumption regarding these facts. And we hold them lightly. But meanwhile, there is message, a message given to our minds. Now, the first way in this message comes is in the form of a warning. He says, don't be deceived. Now, Jesus already said this in the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. He's already said this. So why is he saying it again? Why the repeated reminders? He's already warned us about this. I give you at least two reasons. Number one, because we need reminders. How many times do you be, need to be reminded about things? How many of you use even your iPhone now as your reminder device? You know, remind me about such and such and such and such a time. You know, give me an alarm at that time because I won't remember, right? We need reminders. We have a tendency to attend to warnings very lightly. We have a tendency to underestimate those whom we're up against, and we overestimate our own strength. Jesus continues to remind his disciples, be on alert. Understand how strong your enemy is. Understand your own weakness in light of his. You see, because the cure to a successful Christian life is to recognize just how weak you are, just how strong Satan is, and how omnipotent God is. When you have that in proper perspective, now you're trusting and depending upon the Lord's strength and not your own. 
we need the repeated reminders. That's why. And also, perhaps it's because why do we remind somebody about something? Well, it's typically, why do we say it over and over again? Typically, it's because it's something very important or because we know that what's ahead is very, very dangerous. If, if my children happen to be playing close to power lines, how many times might I mention that the power lines are there, right? If there's something of this nature, if there's something that's exceedingly dangerous, we might remind them several times. You see Jesus repeat this because it's really important, and there's a particular danger that he wants to guard us against. Satan is a master counterfeiter. The deception that is to come is not some easily detected forgery. Remember, Satan's described as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's also described as an angel, you know, one masquerading as an angel of light. He makes things appear to be different than they are. If you were up against an individual with particularly good deceptive powers, what would you want in the way of instruction from the Lord? If I knew you were about to meet someone who is particularly deceptive, particularly winsome in his approach to something, and I knew you were about to meet with them, what would I want to talk to you about before you went and met with them? Could I give you repeated warnings that this person is deceptive? <laughs> Be on your guard. Have as much biblical discernment as possible in, inter- in relating to this person. Encouraging you that vigilance must be maintained. This is what Jesus is doing. And our own day is not exempt from imposters and sham religious leaders and false prophets and false messiah figures. Even listening to the radio on the way in. It was on public broadcasting, so I knew instantly it must be kind of questionable. Um, and it was some interview with some pastor, and he's describing spiritual things. And I'm listening to it on the way in this morning. I'm just like, man, this is really... I was thinking about a text like this. He sounds good on so many levels. And then all of a sudden, there's like a little, oh, I just fell off the cliff. You know, he's saying some things that sound biblical. And all of a sudden, whoa, off the cliff he goes. And all those who follow with him. Our day has these sorts of situations, but you can then guarantee that at the end of human history, with the impending crisis of the end of the world upon us, there will be a final wave of messianic pretenders. And out of a great trial, there will be self-appointed messiahs who are making promises that they cannot fulfill, who are bent on their own power and prestige. You can imagine if the way that our society today operates, if some big disaster happens, everybody's flocking to government authorities to help and all the rest. If that's the condition right now, can you imagine if the sorts of things that the Great Tribulation are describing happen across the whole globe, what kind of individuals might be able to rise to power in such an event? Jesus commands that you must not follow these false messiahs, these false saviors who really cannot save. He warns that there will be false Christs and false prophets. So there will be those who put themselves up as the Messiah figures, and there will be those who point to these false figures. Certainly we've seen some in our own day, people like David Koresh and, and the like, but there will be a massive outpouring of this at the end of human history. Jesus says don't follow them, even if they show you signs and wonders. A good reminder here that false prophets, even the Old Testament, right, could do some signs and wonders. He says don't Follow them. By the way, you know, there's like two big tests of a prophet in the Old Testament, right? You, you had the one where if he said something would happen and it didn't happen, he wasn't a prophet. He didn't hear from God, right? The other one was if he says anything against God's word. So even if he does amazing signs and wonders, but his message is not in line with Scripture, then he's also a false prophet. Do not follow him. This is what Jesus is warning us against. He says that 
this situation will be such that they would love to even lead the elect astray. And then we have this parenthetical, if possible. Jesus wants us to hear just how serious this is, that their words will be so deceptive that even those who know Jesus, that what they're trying to do is tempt those who even are saved into their fold. Now, we know that Jesus is very clear on this matter, that this is not possible. It's the desire of the deceivers. Our salvation is a gift, both in its acquisition as well as in our keeping of it. Praise be the Lord that our salvation doesn't rest on us from the beginning nor to the end. He is the author and the finisher of our salvation. John 10, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. But Jesus' point in making the statement is to say, this is how deceptive they'll be. So if they're effort and their desire is to even lead away God's children, then you can imagine that those who are lost, who don't know Jesus, how much are they going to be influenced by this deceptive thing that's going on? Jesus gives this warning yet again. Be warned. Do not listen. He says, watch out when they tell you to go off to this inner room or out to the wilderness because the Messiah is here. Christ is here. Jesus has an answer to all of this. You don't have to worry about such individuals who say that that's how Jesus is coming, because it's not at all how Jesus is returning. Jesus describes that when he returns, the world will be wrecked with cataclysmic disasters in a great tribulation. We already read about last week. The land, the sky, the sea will all be in an uproar. And then the tumult crescendos throughout the universe as the sun and moon and stars, which God created, which God set in place, all of these heavenly bodies will also bow the knee to Jesus. All of creation sets the stage for Jesus' return. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus says, the sun will darken, the moon will not give its radiance, and the stars will fall from the heavens. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, Jesus is using terminology that was very familiar with Old Testament prophets. Here's just a sampling of them. I'm not going to give you references, just give you a little sample of some of the things that the prophet said. Ezekiel said, the sun will be covered, the moon will not give its light. The Lord says, I will make the stars dark. Joel said, the sun and moon are darkened, the heavens tremble, the stars withdraw their shining. Isaiah said, the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. The host of heaven shall rot away. The skies will roll up like a scroll. The heavens will tremble, stars and constellations will not give their light. So the the, the scene here is that he who created the stars, he who calls them out by name, he who holds the heavens and maintains their positions and their trajectories can shake them as he pleases. He's going to shake them all up. Can you imagine what it would be like to look up into the sky and all of a sudden see the stars just shaking around? He says, I'm going to shake the universe. This is the stage that's being set. This is when then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. One described there, one coming on the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man. The title that Jesus uses most often for himself, the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Of heaven. The name was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
We're told then he'll send his angels with a great trumpet. Makes us think of passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15, in which a last trumpet is sounded and the dead are raised imperishable and everything will be changed. You see, Jesus' first coming was in obscurity. He was in Bethlehem. It prophesied, absolutely, you know, fulfillment of specific prophetic announcement. But his second coming will not be in obscurity. Jesus was originally seen by some hillside shepherds, a little bit later by a few magi from the east. But Jesus' second coming will be attended by the whole world. Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. That's Revelation chapter 1. What did Jesus say here? The nations will tremble. They will mourn. Jesus says that his return will be like lightning coming in the east and shining to the west. It's like lightning being visible throughout the entire sky. Jesus' return will be visible to the entire world. From one horizon to the other, so will Jesus' return be. He speaks an interesting proverb, too. It's it's unique to Matthew's account, Matthew 24, verse 28. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This has had a... Multitude of various interpretive uh, ideas as to what is he actually saying here. But I, I would argue that he's using the picture of if you're, if you're outside and you ever see a flock of vultures on the street, you don't even have to know what's in the middle of the vultures. You know, right? Vultures gather where a corpse is. If I see a bunch of vultures, I know there's something dead on the ground over there. That's what I know. Jesus says, his return will be so publicly manifest that everyone will know it. Everyone will know it. It will be evident to everyone. It will be so grand and so public that those who are in Christ will be gathered together even while the enemies of Christ are running away and attempting to hide. Believers will be gathered around he who is their life and he who gives life through his death and resurrection. If you haven't already noticed it, the first and second comings of Jesus are dramatically contrasted. I've had a few conversations over the weeks with Jackie Duncan, and I've actually mentioned a couple of things that she mentioned in an email to me here as well. Just comparing and contrasting the first coming of Jesus and the second. The first coming of Jesus, he comes as an infant. The second, he comes as a conquering king. The first, he's placed in an animal's feeding trough. The second, he's riding on the clouds. And the first, Jesus comes... And he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. But in the second, he comes draped in a robe dipped in blood. Jesus' first coming was announced by astronomical phenomenon, leading wise men in the east to come and worship him. His second coming is announced by the shaking of the heavens and the darkening of the sun and moon. At Jesus' first coming, a king sought to destroy Jesus in order to maintain his own throne, King Herod. But at Jesus' second coming... We're told that kings will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of mountains, hoping to be shielded from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Kings won't be seeking his death. Kings will be seeking their own lives, trying to be hidden away from the glory and wrath of the coming true and ultimate king. Jesus' first coming was to provide ground for our peace. But in Jesus' second coming, he'll set up worldwide peace. I like how J.C. Ryle summarizes the contrast. I have to include this quote from him. Jesus came the first time in weakness, a tender infant, born of a poor woman in the manger of Bethlehem, unnoticed, unhonored, and scarcely known. 
He shall come the second time in royal dignity. And the armies of heaven around him to be known, to be recognized and feared by all the tribes of the earth. He came the first time to suffer, to bear our sins, to be reckoned a curse, to be despised, rejected, unjustly condemned and slain. He shall come the second time to reign, to put down every enemy beneath his feet, to take the kingdoms of the world for his inheritance, to rule them with righteousness, to judge all men and to live forevermore. Jesus provides us with some explanation. Dear friends, don't listen when someone says, oh, here's Jesus, he's in this room over here. Uh Uh-uh. When he comes, it will be unmistakable. No one's going to miss his coming. It will be known throughout the entire world. And the whole universe will bow the knee to Jesus, its creator. Here is a message for our minds. It's a glimpse into the future, so our thoughts have direction. Our questions have some answers. Maybe not every answer, but your questions have answers here. It's as if he's saying, don't worry, you won't miss my return. You'll have plenty of vindication. But then there are times when answers to the who, what, when, where, why questions are not really our need. Yes, we may hope for some explanation, but at times the intellectual knowledge doesn't bring peace to our hearts. There are times when what we need is something more than information. We need some sort of comfort, some sort of solace, some sort of aid to our souls, something to comfort us in the midst of distress. You see, oftentimes our perseverance in the middle of troubles is not as much dependent on knowing reasons behind what's happening as being comforted in the midst of the conflict and being assured that we won't be abandoned or forsaken. Right? I don't have to have all the answers if I know I'm not alone. Oftentimes, even if I know the reasons why it's happening, it doesn't really help me in the moment of pain and suffering. What helps much more than answers in that moment is comfort. This is why at the time of bereavement of a friend, your ministry is not so much one filled with words. If someone loses a loved one, don't go to their house thinking you need to preach them a sermon. They're not looking for it from me. They're not looking at it for it from you. Yes, there may be some questions that your friend genuinely wants answered. You might have some solid answers for some of those questions to be able to provide. But more than anything, your friend needs a shoulder to cry on. More than anything, that person just needs someone to be there with them. There's a time to speak and there's a time to refrain from speaking. And I would gently um, advise you that a time of bereavement is one in which you say fewer words and are just there. There's a wonderful comfort that's provided to our hearts through a ministry of someone's presence, just knowing that we're not alone. Jesus knows this about us as well. He can give us every little detail of how this is all going to take place, and it would be good knowledge, understanding, but we would still find weakness in the moment of trial and tribulation. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and so he provides us, his followers, but not merely an informational download, something for our minds to devour, He provides us here also with an emotional comfort. He gives us something to be comforted by. He provides us with assurance and words of comfort and security. Because in the tumultuous times ahead, it may be these considerations that figure more prominent in our handling of the difficulties that that are coming. This is why a well-thought-out conclusion for things like theodicy, the problem of evil, or the reason for Christian suffering, while answers for those questions 
can be tremendously helpful to one who has done his or her homework. It's not the best immediate ministry to one who's in the midst of suffering. Sitting down and saying, well, let me describe to you and help you understand the problem of evil. And how it's possible that a God who is all-powerful and all-good can also have a plan for evil within the world. How does that work? Right, let's, let's talk about that a bunch. You know, let's, let's, let's have some time for, for philosophy here. It doesn't help the person then. It doesn't mean that that discussion's unwarranted or a bad discussion to have. I think it's a very worthwhile discussion to have. But it's not the best immediate ministry to one who's in the midst of suffering. In such cases, an acknowledgement that God is indeed in control and that he is indeed working in the midst of circumstances, even that we don't understand, to ultimately bring about the good for his people and God's own glory, that's about enough of a theodicy that we need to describe at that moment. In other words, God sees you. God's still in control. He's still on his throne. That can be helpful perspective for the individual But being able to persevere is more a function of present trusting in God's care and in God's comfort than it is knowing precisely what God is doing with present suffering. Because quite often, dear friends, we don't really precisely know what he's doing with present suffering. We might know the big picture, but we don't necessarily know the precise reasons. Why is my child struggling with this disease right now? Why did my loved one die right now in this fashion? Why? We don't have those specifics. We have some generals, and they're good, and they're helpful. But in the moment of suffering, what we need more than anything is comfort and care. And Jesus knows that about his children. So he not only provides them a message, but he provides them with solace for their souls. Solace for our souls. He comforts our hearts with hope. He talks about the care that God has for his children. He will not forsake his children. His children are never alone. Think about that with my kids, and if they're scared for some reason... I can sit down and rationalize and give them reasons as to why they ought not be scared. But sometimes all they need is a hug from Dad. Sometimes all they need is my presence there. And I'm sure you've all experienced similar moments as well. For God's purposes, for God's good purposes, he has brought judgment upon his people over the ages, which involved dispersion. There are times in which God has scattered his people. There's been numerous occasions of this. You know, the Tower of Babel being one of the most poignant and memorable. Remember when the people all gathered together to make this huge tower into the heavens, to make a name for themselves, so they wouldn't be scattered abroad. And what does God do? He confuses their language, and he scatters them abroad. Right? That's not the only occasion in which God scatters his people. He brought judgment upon Israel in the form of deportations, removing them from the promised land that they were living in when they had forgotten about him. When they focused more on the blessings God had given than him who is the giver. Yet, even in the midst of all those scatterings, all those dispersions, God's ultimate plan is to gather his children together. Remember in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus cried out over Jerusalem, How often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. See, still to this day, God's people are scattered across the globe. But in the coming day of Jesus' return, we will all be gathered together. He will gather his elect, we're told here, from the four winds. Another way it's described, from the end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Other gospel says, from the end of the earth to the end of the heavens. So he's going to gather all of his children together. We're reminded here, here's the comfort. You will not be forgotten. You will not be forsaken. All of God's children, he will gather to himself. You are never alone. What a tremendous comfort Jesus provides us. 
The other comfort that I think this text provides is really pointed to at the end of Luke's account. But before I get to that, I want to kind of set the stage for this a little bit. How you've heard the phrase before, the night is darkest before dawn. Heard that phrase before? Or some rendition similar to that. As I was thinking about this text, I was like, oh, it reminds me of that kind of proverb thing. And I, I don't know where that thing comes from. So I was doing a little bit of, you know, high quality research on the internet, um, and trying to figure out, you know, where does this thing come from? Looking for, you know, source of, where does the source of this little proverbial saying come? It's interesting, is upon doing a little bit of thinking about it and a little bit of internet research, um, everybody concludes together that it's like, that's not true. The night is not the darkest before dawn. Before dawn, the, the sun starts peeking up over the, you get light rays are coming up on the horizon, I mean, that whole process is not just like, it goes really dark and then, whammo, there's the sun. So where does this phrase come from? It's not something astronomically that we observe. Perplexing, and I, sadly, you don't have an answer for, for your curiosities. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you at least a potential answer, one that at least satisfies my curiosity at the moment. Perhaps the reason why the phrase persists, at least, is because we all have experienced it on some level. Like, I say that phrase, and even though it doesn't make any sense astronomically, we all go, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> some of the best moments have followed some of the worst moments in my life. Some of the very best times of my life have been on the tail of something that was exceedingly difficult. How many stories are memorable for that very reason? How many books or movies have you enjoyed that didn't seem to place you on the edge of your seat regarding a great conflict that was about to ensue. I mean, seriously, if there was no great conflict, you probably didn't enjoy the ending. There's got to be something, and we're usually anticipating that in stories, at least in Western tradition. How much sweeter is victory after a significant enemy has been defeated? See, as Christians, we celebrate the most tremendous story ever written. And it isn't the stuff of fairy tales or make-believe. It's the real-life, true story of redemption. A story which God has been foreshadowing for centuries through the lives of so many of His children, but came to fruition in the person of God's own Son taking on flesh and dwelling among us, what we celebrate at Christmas, the Incarnation. He came near not to judge the world, because the world already stood condemned, he came to save it. But, salvation, but the salvation that he accomplished didn't involve a near-death experience. It wasn't a matter of a close call. Jesus came to die. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Israel understood what the Lamb of God meant. They knew what that was. It was the animal that was laid on the altar of God that suffered to atone for, for sin. It was the means by which God's justice might be upheld without the death of the one who sinned. There had to be some bloodshed. There had to be a death in order for God's wrath to be poured out and for the sinner himself to not receive that death. There had to be a substitute. The lamb died as a substitutionary propitiatory sacrifice, a substitute that would satisfy God's wrath, God's judgment, so God's justice would be upheld. And meanwhile the sinner could continue living. Yet it was never enough. For a sinner didn't cease sinning. So another sacrifice would be required. And another, 
and another and another. It becomes self-evident that the blood of goats and calves and lambs and bulls could never really remove sin once and for all. So the sacrifices had to continue. That is, until God sent His Son. Now, this was God's plan from the very beginning. It wasn't some sort of afterthought. Thought. It wasn't like God had called an audible. We discover that God had been preparing His people to realize and appreciate the gift that He was about to give when He sent His Son at the proper time. God called Abraham to give up his beloved son as a sacrifice. But he stopped Abraham short of doing it and provided a ram in Isaac's place. When God demanded the life of all the firstborn sons living in Egypt, he made the death angel pass over the houses that had blood applied to the doorposts. Rather than allow his people to die in the wilderness while they were murmuring and complaining, God would provide water from the midst of a rock that Moses struck with with the staff of God's judgment. And so it would be, that God Himself would provide His people with life by striking His Son on their behalf, not holding Him back as Isaac had been, but laying down His Son's life in their stead. The song, O Holy Night, puts it well. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks A new and glorious morn. You see, the message of the gospel is not that God throws righteousness and holiness and purity to the wind. He doesn't merely sweep immorality and wickedness under the rug. No sin goes unpunished. God is righteous and just. And he'll by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. Yet God is merciful and gracious and loving. And so he provides for the salvation of wicked, rebellious sinners by punishing their sin with the full fury of his wrath upon the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Our sin can be taken away because there's one who died in the sinner's place. You can be forgiven because he was bruised. He was beaten. He was stricken. He was abused. He was persecuted. He was assaulted. He was crucified. Your guilt can be erased because he bled and died for the guilty. Your sin can be removed as far as east is from the west because he spread out his arms upon the cross. The baby born in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, God with us, came to die for us upon a cross outside of Jerusalem. He was cursed so we could be blessed. He rose again then proving that the debt had been paid and that death had been defeated. We needed a hero. And that's who Jesus is. He came to rescue us. His birth brought light to a dark world. Yet the darkness would not receive Him. Spitefully, the world rebelled against God's Son, just as it had rebuffed the warnings of God's prophets that had been sent before Him. And so it would seem that darkness had won, for Christ was betrayed and sent to death. But following the darkest hour came the brightest light. Jesus went through the worst imaginable pain and suffering because His purpose for coming was never to defy death. He came to defeat death. You see, as the Son of God, Jesus was life in Himself. His very existence defies death. He has life in Himself as the eternal Son of God. Death could not touch Him. He had life in Himself. God is not subject to death. 
this is where we note the miracle of the incarnation. God taking on flesh. Why God man? Why did God the Son take on flesh? Well, God is not subject to death, but man is. And Jesus, as both fully God and fully man, could lay down his life. He could take on flesh and humble himself to the point of death on the cross and then accomplish what none of us can. Fulfill all righteousness and die as a substitute to redeem sinners from the judgment to come. And then rise again victoriously for our justification. You see, what appeared to be Jesus' defeat was actually his victory. Because death could not defeat him and the grave could not hold him. And so his tomb would be vacated. Oh, what joy. He is risen. Hallelujah. Death and sin are vanquished by our all-powerful, conquering Savior King, Jesus Christ. He succeeded where everyone else failed. He's our hero. He's our rock. He is our surety. He is our confidence. He is our victory. Now, why do I spend the time to remind you of these truths? Well, for one, I can't help but talk about these things. How do you ever tire of telling of the greatest story ever given to man? But it also makes application here. Our minds and hearts must remember that the greatest blessings of God flow from the midst of the greatest difficulties and hardships. Let me put it this way. If God can take the betrayal, the abandonment, the crucifixion, the death of his own son, and work it for his glory and our good, then certainly he can do that with all the trials we face. And if the greatest trial still lies before us in a great tribulation, you can be sure that while those days will be full of anguish and pain and sorrow and difficulty, the weight of glory to be revealed is such that the great tribulation will pale in comparison. It will appear to be a drop in the bucket compared to what is yet to come. The oceans of God's blessings and love for His children. So when everyone else is looking down, we should be looking up. Looking up to our Savior who came down to us. Looking up to our Heavenly Father who looks after and cares for His children. Looking up to the Holy Spirit who provides us with comfort and strength and wisdom that only He can provide. When the great tribulation comes, and for that matter, when lesser tribulations come to us as well, we should be found straightening our head, found looking up for strength and hope and joy that only God can provide. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to us as Christians is for something to come into our life that strips us of all the blessings that surround our lives to remind us that what we need is not more of God's blessings, but more of God himself. Don't get swept up, though, in the fear of the nations. You see, they're rightly afraid at the coming of Jesus. They are rightly afraid. Herod was afraid when a baby was born in his kingdom, who was born king of the Jews. You can imagine that the kings of this world will be hiding when the king of kings and lord of lords arrive. That is, if they don't have him as their king. But don't get swept in their vain, in their vain fear, their vain attempts to find a place to hide. They can't hide from him. There will be great sadness for those who have rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior because Jesus comes to bring judgment. But we whom Jesus has called friends have nothing to fear. His love has cast out all fear. We don't fear those who can merely kill the body. Whatever happens in the Great Tribulation, who cares? Our God holds on to us 
And, they, and these people, these enemies, can't do anything with our souls. They're in our Lord's hands. Don't become overwhelmed with perplexity or befuddlement at why things are proceeding the way they are. Instead, in those moments, trust the all-powerful, all-wise God, knowing that He's in control and He knows what He's doing. Everything is under His perfect control. And every day that passes brings us one step closer to the final judgment for the wicked. But it's also one step closer to our redemption, our final glorification with our Lord and Savior Jesus. The day of great judgment upon those who have rejected Christ will be the day of great reward for those who believe in him. Jesus provides that, this note of marvelous hope in Luke. Luke 21, verse 28. But these things beginning to happen. What are these things? The great tribulation, the signs of his coming, the entire cosmos being thrown in upheaval, all of this stuff going on. Jesus says, but in these moments, when these things begin to happen, straighten up. Raise up your heads. Because your redemption draws near. Even in the most adverse circumstances, there's hope for those who are in Christ. In the midst of the darkest night, when things have gotten to their very worst point, know that redemption draws near. Every trial we experience brings us one step closer to home, because this is not our home. When everyone else is stressing, straighten up. When everything else appears to be spinning out of control, when the heavens are shaken, when the world is being turned upside down, remember your Heavenly Father cares for you. He's holding you. He won't forget you. He won't forsake you. When everyone else is perplexed, take solace in God's power and wisdom. Everything's going according to His plan, set out from eternity. And when fear has gripped humanity for the expectation of what is to come, find comfort in the fact that your redemption draws near. The brightest days are following the greatest difficulty. Jesus' return will exceed everyone's expectations. And what is to follow will be beyond our wildest imagination. Here is the truest and the supreme happy ending. So this Christmas, as we remember Christ's first coming and we celebrate what he has done on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection, may we also remember that he's coming back. And in the midst of tribulation that we might be in the middle of right now, and the great tribulation that is yet to come, look up, church. Our redemption draws near. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can look up. Thank you, Lord, that when these great trials and tribulations happen, some of which we might be in the middle of right now, I don't know where each family and each individual is at this exact moment in their life. Some might feel like they're going through a tremendous tribulation. But thank you that we can look up. We don't have to be downtrodden, for in Christ we have victory. And thank you, Lord, that when history culminates in this majestic, awesome display of power and wisdom and greatness, and Jesus comes riding on the clouds, and while those who don't know him cower in fear, thank you that we can look up for our redemption draws near. Lord, while it's still called today, there's an opportunity for those who would otherwise fear your coming to change that. There's an opportunity right now for them to repent of their sin and to look to Jesus, to call upon his name to be saved. I pray they would. I know they can't do it without your supernatural gift of faith and repentance, and so we plea for that. We ask that you would awaken dead hearts, that you would grant life to those who are dead in sins. You cause them to repent and call out to Jesus. 
thank you that we can look up and we look forward to your return, Jesus. Maranatha, our Lord, come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.